Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So uh, today we have a guest that originally this was going to be a little on the lighter side, fun, fun for you and me, while still dealing with something that I'm really interested in, and has some fun reasons to make fun of Marjorie Taylor Green, which I'm always looking for. Um, and then we ran into this problem of this global conflagration over Israel and anti-Semitism and all the ugliness on campuses. So I just want to be clear to everybody, not only was the book we're going to talk about written long before this happened, but the plan on having today's guest was planned before this happened. Um, and we're just going to, we're going to deal with the climate going on out there as best we can. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, my guest today is Mike Rothschild. Uh, and he is the author of Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Uh, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we can take a, a lighthearted approach to uh, the horrifying events of the, of the last month. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we can take a lighthearted approach to anti-Semitism. I don't know how lighthearted we have to be to the actual events. No. Right? No, no. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, and we should be clear, uh, you are not, in fact, a Rothschild. I am not, in fact, a Rothschild. That was kind of uh, one of the things that sparked my interest in writing this book in the first place. Was when I started debunking conspiracy theories, hoaxes, scams, frauds, I would get a lot of comments of like, oh, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. You know, how stupid do they think we are? You know, the, the matrix is broken, you know, stuff like that. But I really wanted to figure out who is this family and what is the real story versus what is the story that has been made up about them? And what, if anything, have they done about the story that's been made up about them? And of course, as I found writing the book, they really haven't done anything about it at all for very good reasons. Right. So um, just so listeners know, your previous book was The Storm is Still Upon, the storm is upon Us. Still Upon Us. Is it still upon us? No, no, no. Well, I'm saying that it is, it is still upon okay, us. Okay, okay. Because I, I said still upon us and I realized it wasn't in that. The storm is upon us, how QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. So you can see how you would get interested in Rothschild stuff. Um, right. So true fact, uh, I have a, when I would do book tours, uh, speeches for my last book, I would make this point that, which is sort of a rhetorical point, that we're all descended from poor people. Right. Um, and most of us, it's one or two generations. Some of us, it's four generations. And I would always make this joke about how, okay, there may be a spare Rothschild in the room <laughs> who goes back eight generations or whatever. And I always got to laugh. And it was just to make a point that for the most part, we're all descended from poor people and that we should be grateful that things have gotten better over the last 300 years. And then at one point, I was giving, I was using that line and 
a table at this event started bursting the laughter. And it turns out that it's actually a friend of mine, Dan Rothschild, who is a Rothschild, mm. okay. was at that table and he was like, raised his hand and he was like, okay, so yeah. you're, you're the exception to the rule. But um, he still works for a living. He is very uh, attenuated uh, Rothschild. Um, all right, so normally I, my first question to authors is, what's your book about? I think we already know that. Who were the Rothschilds? Sure. So there is the real version of the Rothschilds, and then there is the conspiracy theory version of the Rothschilds. So the real version of the Rothschilds is they were a uh, German-Jewish banking family that started in the Frankfurt Jewish ghetto, literally the, the Judengasse, the, the Jews' lane. It was a very tightly cramped in, walled off sort of city within a city in Frankfurt. And uh, Mayor Amschel Rothschild was the patriarch of the family, and he made his living uh, essentially as a money changer, making small-time loans, and then he ascended to the position of court Jew, that was a real position, to the crown prince of Hesse. And so the, the court Jew, this is a, a position that goes back uh, really to the 1100s almost, it was essentially a Jewish banker who was in the retinue of royalty who would have access to the wealth of the Jewish community. Because, of course, canon law prohibited the lending of money at interest. But, of course, these rulers and these churches, they needed money. They needed money for their buildings to raise their armies. So they went to the Jewish community. So Mayer became the court Jew to the crown prince of Hesse. In doing so, he became entrusted with the essentially the vast fortune uh, uh, that was had been gathered up by the crown prince's father, the elector of Hesse, who made that money through the leasing of mercenaries, the Hessians, who are referred to in the Declaration of Independence. And also many, you're a little too young for this, but in a great many Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yes, um, yeah, the Hessian oppression. Yeah. Um, so the, the fortune of the elector was being sought after by the troops of Napoleon. So the elector enlisted mayor and then by then his son Amschel to essentially hide this money and to funnel it uh, back and forth across the English Channel to fund the Napoleonic Wars. And this, of course, climaxes in the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. By then, Mayer's uh, middle son, Nathan, he had five sons. His son, Nathan, had kind of taken over the family, and they had spread out to the financial capitals of Europe, uh, to Vienna, to Naples, to London, to Paris, and were really one of the richest families in Europe at that point. So the, the Rothschild dynasty really emerged in the late 17 and early 1800s by taking this fortune and spinning it out into an even larger fortune, where then they started to buy up railroads, uh, mines, uh, all kinds of other manufacturing concerns, textiles, uh, gold. And you know, within uh, a couple of decades in the 1800s, they were incredibly wealthy and were known all over Europe. As, as the sort of the, the kings of Jews, essentially. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it's important to point out that one of the reasons why Jews get the Shylock treatment, the moneylender, like the greedy thing is that usury was considered a sin. Only Jews, they, they said only Jews can do it because they have no souls or they're going to hell anyway or whatever. And then they criticize them for being moneylenders, right? So they get it coming and going. Um, and... Let's talk about the different cliche anti-Semitic tropes and how the Rothschilds fit into them. So one of them is the moneylender one. We just talked about that. Another one is the rootless cosmopolitan, right? Because um, the Rothschilds were in a lot of different countries, right? They were a cosmopolitan right. franchise, right? 
they, they were the epitome of continental. They had palaces in Vienna. They had vast holdings of land. They had industry in Russia, in Cuba, in South America, in China. The, the Rothschilds were a global business, but they were still very rooted to Europe and, and to their Judaism. One of, and one of the things that brought them so much scrutiny is that while a lot of their contemporaries uh, essentially anglicized their names, converted, the Rothschilds never did. They stayed very observant. They stayed very true to their roots as a German Jewish family. And so they, they sort of took the brunt of the, uh, the scorn and the myth-making that would have fallen to a lot of other German Jewish families in the banking world who had kind of taken Judaism out of their public image. Now, you, you mentioned it briefly. I mean, we're just trying to do some level setting here. You mentioned it briefly the Waterloo thing. Um, that's taken on a now centuries-long life of its own as part of the the Ur indictment of the Rothschilds. Can you just sort of explain that a little bit more? Sure. So the Battle of Waterloo takes place in 1815. It's the the culmination of the Napoleonic Wars. And by that point, the Rothschilds... It was literally Napoleon's Waterloo. It was Napoleon's <laughs> Waterloo. was Napoleon's Waterloo. <laughs> Waterloo 1.0. Uh, it, it, and the Rothschilds were deeply involved in funding Wellington's forces on the continent. So about 30 years after the battle, as uh, socialism is starting to rise up in France, there's a lot of anti-wealth sentiment. Of course, anti-wealth sentiment very quickly curdles into anti-Jewish sentiment. There is a pamphlet that emerges in Paris in 1846, written uh, anonymously under the name Satan, that accuses Nathan Rothschild, who was by that point, he'd been dead for 10 years at that point, but uh, during the Battle of Waterloo was sort of the commanding general of the family, accuses Nathan not only of sort of war profiteering, but of being at the Battle of Waterloo. And he was so close that he could smell the cannon smoke and see the anguish on the faces of the wounded. And seeing uh, that Napoleon was about to lose the battle, he gets on his fine steed, gallops across the continent in the middle of the night to the Belgian port of Ostend, braves a once-in-a-century ch uh, once channel storm by, of course, you know, bribing a terrified sailor to take him across the channel, gets to the London Stock Exchange just at its opening. He slumps against his favorite pillar, defeated and exhausted. The other bankers are looking at him, looking at his affect and thinking, Rothschild knows what's happened. We've lost the battle. We, mu we must sell off our stocks. So the, the other bankers start selling off their stocks. Of course, Nathan, being the, the crafty Jew that he is, is motioning to his agents to buy up everything. Then the real news of Waterloo comes. Those stocks skyrocket in value, and Nathan Rothschild is suddenly the richest man in the British Empire and controls the British money supply. Now, that is a myth that you will see in legitimate biographies of the family. You will see that in the Nazi propaganda films about the family. Alex Jones would repurpose that about 10 years ago. It is totally untrue. Not, none of that actually happened. But it's a great story. And of course, a great story gets harder and harder to kill. So the Rothschilds actually did attempt to push back at this one. Uh, by saying, well, Nathan wasn't at the battle, but he maybe did get news of the battle early. There are now various different versions of the versions of the of the story. The real story is that the Rothschilds made a huge amount of money off the Napoleonic Wars, but virtually nothing off the Battle of Waterloo. And in fact, they were over-leveraged at the time of the Battle of Waterloo. They bought too much gold and were actually uh, imperiled by the fact that the, that the war, that the next war against Napoleon ended so quickly. So there's real history there, but it is it is incredibly consumed with myth-making and with the idea that that was the moment where the Rothschilds took control of global finance. So what are some other examples of 
Rothschild's having this outsized role in the imagination, anti-Semitic or otherwise. Um, I don't think they're a member of the Pentaveret. Um, <laughs> you know, it's that's Colonel Sanders. Right. Um, Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch, right. Uh, but uh, there are many... Or the Egg Council. The Egg Council, the, the Beef Council of America. You know. This is like a through line for centuries now. So like, what are some of your other favorite examples of Rothschildian uh, string pulling? Oh, there's there's so many. The, what Maybe my favorite is one that emerged in the 1920s, thanks to an exiled Russian monarchist count, who was not actually a count, named Arthur Cherup Spritovich. This is a guy who uh, fled the Russian Revolution, went to Staten Island, tried to start a uh, pan-Slavic nation, and then uh, tried to unite the United Gentiles League of America. Uh, and he took his own life after the first meeting of the United Gentiles League drew one uh, attendee. But he wrote a book called The Secret World Government. And in this book, he posits this conspiracy theory that the Rothschilds, uh, by that point it would have been, uh, uh, I think Lionel Rothschild, uh, conspired with Benjamin Disraeli in the 1850s at a wedding to essentially start the Civil War and then divide up the United States, that the North would go to Canada and the South would go to France, both run by Rothschilds. And uh, they basically just hatched this whole plot over this dinner at a wedding, deciding uh, how the United States would be carved up. And there were troops of the secret government that infiltrated the South through Mexico that secretly lost the battles that the that the Confederacy lost, and that the heroic Czar uh, tried to stop this by sending his fleets to New York and San Francisco, but they were defeated in battle by the secret fleets of the Hidden Hand, the secret world government. Um, now, again, th- this is not anything that happened, but you can just kind of see it in your head, like these people in their top hats and their tuxedos just plotting over like a, a, a pheasant dinner. Oh, Nor- Lionel, you shall take the North and Nathaniel, you shall take the South. It, it, this sort of very upper crust conspiracy theory that, that sort of just divides the United States and it's all just secret and this exiled count in a Staten Island hotel room is revealing the whole thing. I, that's probably my favorite Rothschild conspiracy because it is just so perfect. So I have this theory and I'm curious because you did the QAnon book too. Um, I basically think that the moment, look, I, I'm a conservative, grew up on the right, know a lot of conservatives. I know a lot of conservatives have lost their minds. Um, sometimes, it, like after 9-11, there were a group of them who did. And then um, QAnon period, some others did, right? Even if they're not QAnon people, they... And I, I, I generally speaking, think that it's not a. It's not. It's not an iron law because there are some exceptions that I can think of. But generally speaking, when that switch gets flipped in your head that says there are unseen forces manipulating the world, it is the rare conspiracy theorist who doesn't become an anti-Semite because there's just something about the logic. Uh, once you buy into this idea that conspiracies of great magnitude and complexity are possible. There's no logic, there are no logical defenses in your psychology that say, oh, but it's outlandish to think the Jews have anything to do with it. You just, you go there, right? Um, Is there, um, what is the extent of anti-Semitism 
in QAnon? Is it total? Is it partial? Is it like, is it, is the partial stuff anti-Semitic adjacent? I mean, like, what is the role of the Jews in the QAnon universe? Oh, it's total. Uh, there's no, there's no attempt whatsoever to couch the anti-Semitism of QAnon. I think the second Q drop accuses George Soros of giving away all of his money to fund the dark forces. There are numerous drops that make references to the Rothschilds. There is a drop, uh, that references, that reprints a hideously anti-Semitic cartoon from 4chan. And just explain what the drops are. This is like the, the tablets coming down from the mount. Basically, yeah, a lamer version of that. Uh, the, the Q drops are the posts that were made first on 4chan and then on 8chan by this mysterious figure who called themselves Q, claimed to be a team of people who were working at the president, that, you know, President Trump's right hand to uh, put all the pieces in place for this great purge of the deep state that just somehow never quite got around to happening. But there are 5,000 something of these Q drops and they range from uh, sort of long strings of cryptic rhetorical questions to like links to Fox News stories and memes. Uh, sort of something for everyone in a story that makes absolutely no sense, contradicts itself constantly, and in no way, shape, or form has any veracity to it. How much of the Rothschilds actually play in QAnon universe? Oh, they're, they're definitely right there. They're some of the funders of the, of the Dark Forces. There's a series of Q-drops that list uh, all of the Rothschild-owned central banks, uh, which was something that Q ripped off from some uh, fringe blog from 2012. Uh, and of course, there are no such thing as Rothschild central banks because that's not how central banking works. Uh, there's a series of drops. I write about this in, uh, maybe in both books, actually. Um, this stuff is very repetitive. There's a series of drops that claims that the Rothschilds had a fire sale of their Black Forest Austria estates because the Q team figured out that they were holding human hunting parties there. Now, uh, astute listeners will know that the Black Forest is not in Austria. It's in Germany. Uh, the Rothschilds did own an enormous parcel of land in Vienna which had been seized by the Soviets after the war. And then the Rothschilds only got part of it back. And then they did actually sell off quite a bit of it. But they sold it off because like a lot of other really wealthy families, they're starting to divest themselves of a lot of the adornments of two centuries of wealth. You know, we just saw that the French Rothschilds had this really large auction of art items. Uh, they're not doing this because they're desperate for money because they need to go on the run. They just want less stuff. Uh, there's a sort of a downsizing going on in those worlds. So there's very real reasons why some of these things happen. It's just a lot more fun to make up conspiracy theories involving like human sacrifices about them. I mean, let, let's let's cut to the chase about the Jewish space laser thing, right? Um, we are we are recording this on the one month to the day after the Hamas attack. If I'm just going to posit it. Um, and we haven't talked about where you come down on Israel and all that kind of stuff. And I'm fine with people who want to criticize Israel, but like if you're if you're going to defend killing kids in front of their families, then we're going to have an argument. But um, yeah. uh, um, it seems to me that critic, reasonable critics, and friends of Israel alike can agree that if the Jews had access to space lasers, they'd be using them now. In the war on Hamas. <laughs> yeah, you'd think some more pinpoint uh, elimination of your enemies rather than carpet bombing would uh, be a little more efficient right. uh, and put an end to this thing. 
a little faster. But you know, you know, there's always a reason why the dark forces they have this technology, but they only use it for the dumbest reasons, and they do everything in secret and everything is coded. But at the same time, it's done so poorly that it is immediately discoverable by researchers on the internet in their basements. The the paradox of the all-powerful, all-controlling, yet completely inept uh, string pullers is something that's really dragged behind wealthy Jewish families for a long time. This idea that they run everything, but they can't actually do anything without it immediately being figured out, but nothing ever happens when it's figured out. So you're talking about a, a, a sort of self-sustaining loop where nothing makes any sense and nothing has to make any sense because it's not real. So you, you don't need to debate the finer points of these theories because the theories themselves are completely made up. That's why these conspiracy theories work so well the more detail they have piled on them, the more kind of ephemera and characters and machinations you load on these things, the more believable they become because they take on the sort of patina of actual history when there is no history there whatsoever. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
Um, all right, so we sh- I, I jumped the gun with the space laser thing. Can you just explain the etymology or the, the, the TikTok on where the space laser stuff comes from? Um, and um, is it original to Marjorie Taylor Greene or is she picking up on something that was already in the bloodstream elsewhere? Uh, yeah, nothing Marjorie Taylor Greene does is particularly original. So the directed energy weapon idea, the idea that there is a uh, satellite-based laser that starts forest fires, was really going around with the 2018 California fires. And of course, we've seen it with the 2020 fires. We saw it this year with the Maui fires, with the fires in Canada. Basically, this idea that the dark forces, they need to clear land or you know fuel their climate change scam or whatever it is, and they use lasers to start forest fires. And you can tell that because the fires, uh, they zap one house, but they miss another house. And the trees, they, they miss the trees because, of course, the dark forces love trees so much. Well, again, all of this is a basic misunderstanding of how fire works. Fire, it, it takes on a life of its own. The embers from a fire can burn one house and completely miss another house. Trees, living trees in the ground, don't burn in a forest fire because they're full of water. There are reasons why these things happen, but conspiracy theorists don't ever talk about the reasons why things don't happen. They make up their own reasons. So Marjorie Taylor Greene was just basically piggybacking off this idea that was going around that the campfire in 2018, this this horrible wildfire here, uh, was started by a laser beam. And it was done in her version of the story by Pacific Gas and Electric by uh, then-Governor Jerry Brown, by Dianne Feinstein's husband, all done with the cooperation of a solar energy startup that was beaming energy from space to the Earth, but they very conveniently missed and just happened to burn down a section of forest that the PG&E needed gone to build a high-speed rail boondoggle. And, oh, one of the board members of PG&E is a vice president at Rothschild, Inc. And, oh, isn't that interesting? So... Marjorie, in her post, she never says Jewish space laser. She never says Jewish. That came later. But she doesn't have to. She says Rothschild, Inc. Rothschild, Inc. means the Jews. It's the same way globalist means Jews, the same way London financiers means Jews. She knows what she's talking about. She knows who she's talking to. And, of course, that post then disappears because she put that up in 2018. It wasn't found until uh, end of January 2021. She'd already been sworn into Congress when, when that post was finally discovered. And, of course... Everybody goes nuts with their uh, Jews in space memes and their hashtags and, and, you know, and all the pictures and all that stuff. But, you know, here again is a, is a sort of benign and funny seeming, uh, you know, basically Jewish control myth of the Jews burned down the forest so they could build their railroad or do whatever they were doing. It's not that different from some of the myths that were used about the Rothschild family in the 1800s, that James de Rothschild, who's the uh, French uh, Rothschild head, was destroying the pristine forests of France so he could build his cheap railroads. It's really the same thing. And that's where you find that these myths are repurposed over and over and over again. That, you know, the nouns are changed, the dollar amounts are inflated, but you're really talking about the same thing over and over again. Yeah, so that raises an interesting question. Um, how much is it, is, do you think, is the enduring nature of tropes, myths, whatever we want to call them, right? And how much of it do you think is actually a psychological phenomenon, right? That it is, it's sort of like um, for years, people with certain kinds of mental illness, bipolar type things 
were convinced that the CIA was talking to them through their fillings. And, and the problem, problem was that the lot of people with those, uh, with those mental conditions, they would hear legitimately hear voices and then they're really open to the power of suggestion. So someone tells you, oh no, it's actually the CIA going through your fillings and, and boom, it just, that narrative takes over people, would take over people's heads and it's tragic and it's sad and, you know, and some of them were violent and some of them were just harming themselves and some of them would write me letters quite often. Um, but how much of it do you think is the endurance of these tropes and how much of it do you think is the, this conspiratorial mindset that says life is more complicated than we, when, than, than the story they're telling us. There are unseen forces controlling the world. And, and then like the, the, the idea of CIA through my feelings, someone, the implantation of the Jewish thing, it makes it through the blood brain barrier in a certain kind of way and just populates that psychology, but the psychology is there on its own. Yeah, it's, it's both of those things. And it's, it's a very complicated relationship. And I think um, a lot of it stems from, as you're saying, the desire to believe that there are hidden forces, that things are bigger than we are being told, but it's also the need for secret knowledge. It's not just things are happening, it's I know what those things are. I've been clued in, I've done my research, as, as they're constantly saying. It's a feeling of wanting your life to be more interesting and more important than it actually is. If you are dialed into understanding what's going on in the dark cabal and you've read your Q drops and you've read, uh, you know, Behold a Pale Horse or None Dare Call a Conspiracy, all the great touchstone conspiracy books, you know things. And if you know things, you're dangerous. And if you're dangerous, the deep state, the cabal, whoever is going to come after you. So it is a feeling of self-importance of, of your life having meaning. It's a feeling of community, of feeling you are uh, meeting other people who are traveling down this lonely road that you're going. We saw so much of that during the, during lockdown. You know, people who had jobs, they were, they were working at home, they had young kids, they, they, were, they, they had a lot of time on their hands. And when you have a lot of time on your hands and you're trying to figure out what is really going on with a world-changing event, you're going to be really susceptible to conspiracy theories. It's why we, we've seen so many people who are in the wellness world, the holistic health world, get pulled into stuff like QAnon, because it starts to unite all of these different uh, things that are giving you unease and that are uh, asking you questions and you're not getting the right answers for them. And then where you fall into anti-Semitism is, well, if someone is running all of this stuff, if there is a dark cabal that is controlling everything and I know about it, well, someone has to be funding it. Somebody has to be in charge of it. And because we have centuries of conspiracy theories about Jewish cabals funding things, because we have the popularity of something like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which posits this secret government of wealthy elderly Jews who are pulling all the strings, it's very easy to unite all of those things together. And especially if you're isolated or if you're with a community of people who believe the same things, everyone is affirming each other's beliefs. No one is saying, hey, you know, maybe you should take a step back from this and what you're, what you're talking about here is actually really, really anti-Semitic and it's actually fake and all of these other legitimate reasons, you, you start to turn this into your worldview and it becomes the lens through which you see everything. So there is, uh, when you really spend a lot of time in the social media of these believers, they're the most miserable people. They have forsaken their families, their jobs. 
they don't even, they can't even watch TV. They can't listen to music because all they see is the evil and the plotting and the pedophilia and Satanism. So that becomes a, a sort of addiction to itself. You, you become addicted to this misery and to feeling like you are a lonely soldier fighting this battle that you can't tell anybody about. So it's a very complicated, very complex psychology. And I think a lot of people want to just dismiss it as, yeah, they're all crazy. Well, they're not all crazy. Some of them are, but a lot of them are not. And they have real reasons why these things have meaning to them. And I think the, the sooner we understand that there are real reasons why people fall into these movements, the sooner we can maybe try to do something about it. So I, I, I'm of two minds about some of this stuff. Uh, there's a guy we've had on here a couple times, um, really interesting guy, Joseph Uzinski. Oh, sure, uh, sure. And you know, one of the points he'll make is that we tend to, because Americans are very America-centric, uh, we think that we have this unique problem with conspiracy theories and paranoid style and all that. It turns out we're pretty much in the meaty part of the bell curve on this kind of thing and that like, every country has their conspiracy theories. It's a little dismaying how many of them are Jewish conspiracy theories, but every country <laughs> yeah. has conspiracy and theories. It, and right? in countries where there aren't any Jews. Right, right. Um, and it's funny, the, the Argentinians apparently are um, obsessed with the fact that when aliens visit visited Earth, they all went to Argentina because that's where you'd go. Sure. Right? sure. <laughs> and um, alien rat lines. <laughs> and, um, but um, at the same time, you know, you want to feel like it's worse than it's ever before. It's ever been. On the other hand, it may just be more visible, right? Because of social media and the light that we shine on these things. And so do you have an opinion on on whether this stuff is more prevalent than it used to be or is it just more visible than it used to be or does social media and the ability to connect with other conspiracy mongers make it easier to form communities that reinforce? Because um, I mean, there's a, I, I, I come down a lot of different ways depending upon if so, whether I want to push back against someone who's catastrophizing sure, or if I want to push back on someone who I don't think is catastrophizing enough. <laughs> sure, right. And it's, it's hard. Because, uh, you know, human beings are, are hardwired to believe in, in hidden dangers and patterns. So everybody has something that maybe they don't have quite enough evidence for, but they believe it. And the vast majority of the time, it's fine. The vast majority of conspiracy theory belief is fine. Believing that Bigfoot is real, believing that, you know, the Corsican mafia took out JFK, doesn't matter. It's not affecting your life. It's not isolating you from your family. But these kind of all-consuming conspiracy worlds are becoming much more visible. So in the, in the past, in sort of the pre-internet dark ages, all of this stuff was still around. You had million-selling conspiracy books, pamphlets, you know, homemade videos, things like that. But there was a barrier to entry. You had to actually do some work. You had to know where the weird bookstore was that was selling uh, you know, the naked capitalist or which way Western man or, you know, any of those old conspiracy touchstones. You had to know wh when the gun show was, so you can go get your new copy of uh, Waco, The Big Lie. You had to have access to, a, you know, a printing press or a, pr a machine that could print out your newsletters or your pamphlets. You had to know who these people were and where they congregated. Now, with social media, anybody can log on to, you know, whatever, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, find a, con a community of people who believe in anything that you want to believe in flat earth, uh, you know, secret wars in the heavens, whatever it is, 
Or if you don't find it, you can just make it up. And if you make up something that is compelling and you're prolific enough at it, you pump it out on, you know, Substack or Twitter or Gab or whatever your chosen vehicle is, you can become an influencer. You can turn it into your job. I have seen this happen. I've seen people who I had never heard of start pumping out conspiracy theories. And within six months, they have tens of thousands of paying Substack subscribers. They're creating podcasts and YouTube videos every day. There is no barrier to entry. The technology is trivially easy to master. You can get this stuff out to anybody in any length of time. That's really what's changed. I don't think more of us believe in conspiracy theories necessarily, though I do anecdotally feel like every time I talk to somebody about this, they know somebody who believes one of these things, whether it's the vaccine is poisoned, the election was stolen, uh, you know, flat earth, whatever it is. But generally speaking, the biggest change is that it all moves much faster. And it is now trivially easy to jump into this world with both feet and find anybody who validates whatever delusion you are going through. So I, I think what has changed is there is there is no separation between any of these worlds anymore. And that's really a new thing for the last, maybe the last five years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to see it the same way. I mean, there's also... There's this larger problem that's a problem of our culture generally. It's not it's it's conspiracy theory adjacent in the sense that um, it makes the problems of conspiracy theory stuff worse, um, but also just makes our politics worse. Which is that it's sort of a Marshall McLuhan point. We're following everything through screens. Screens are increasingly like we we we're now obsessed with narrative. Right. And so, um, whatever is, whatever bespoke narrative fits the conclusions that we want to have, um, that's what we run with. And so the election denying, like, I, I, I honestly think that four fifths of the Republicans who say in polls, um, that the election was stolen, uh, they actually don't have a serious theory about how the election was stolen. It's a social desirability bias. It's a refusal to tell the libs uh, they're right about something, right? It's the middle finger. It's like, screw you, you're just trying to get me to criticize Trump and I don't want to do that. I don't support it. I don't condone it. I don't like it. But it is not like, like I remember Roger Stone, my favorite, other than the Italian satellites. Uh, yes, Italy Gate. Yes. <laughs> but my, my favorite one was I, I listened to Roger Stone give a stemwinder where he said that he had evidence that North Korea had sent ships with full of ballots to Maine and then they loaded them on trucks and they populated them throughout the northeastern seaboard to steal Pennsylvania elections. And like, first of all, look at a map at how long it takes for boats to get from North Korea to Maine. That's a, that's a schlep. That's <laughs> it a really schlep. is. <laughs> and the idea that the North Koreans are going to get, like, this is one of the reasons when you have to actually argue with these people, you have to point out that, like, no two, you know, like, ballots in neighboring precincts are going to be different, right? Like, like one's going to have the school board for this county and the other one's going to have the school board for that county. The idea that the North Koreans have this granular understanding of how to slip these ballots into each one of these precincts, you know, and you start doing it and you're like, okay, this is kind of crazy. Most people don't buy that stuff. They just like, they want to say, 
we didn't lose fair and square because our team is better than your team. At the same time, I worry that that kind of thing is a gateway drug to... Because people... You can make anybody ultimately buy into a conspiracy if you wear them down long enough. And we live in a time where this is a problem on both sides. I think it's more acute on the right right now. But like you follow a lot of stuff with with Israel. And, you know, I just watched this clip this morning of Roger Waters um, telling Glenn Greenwald that, you know, the Israelis made up these accusations of rape or attack and or, or murder. Um, and the desire of a lot of people to believe Hamas when they say we didn't kill any civilians. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? And um, and I think it just gets easier and easier given the technology we have to think that everything can be CGI'd to fit the world that you want to have. Yeah, and I, I say this a lot with, with the world of conspiracy theories, that conspiracy theories are like Pringles in that nobody eats just one. Once you believe that these shadowy dark forces have faked one thing. Well, what is the what is stopping you from believing that the shadowy dark forces have faked a second thing? I mean, if you're faking one thing, so you're building one Death Star, you might as well build two Death Stars. It's um, and, and what it does is it wears down your ability to tell fact and fiction, and you start to get essentially get high on the drug of everything is fake. Only I know what's real. Only the trusted sources that I believe can tell me what's real. And when the trusted sources that I believe get something wrong, uh, they, they only got it wrong uh, on purpose to throw the deep state off. That was, you know, one of the things with, with Trump and with Q. Like, you would see these things that Q would sort of very vaguely predict, and they wouldn't happen. And the, the Q believer doesn't take that opportunity to say, well, gosh, I mean, if that one thing is wrong, what else is wrong? Maybe I've been fooled this whole time, because we know that's not how these movements work. We go back to a book like When Prophecy Fails from the 1950s. The UFO cult is wandering around Chicago in the middle of the night, you know, in, on Christmas Eve, waiting for the UFO to come. Well, the UFO doesn't come. Well, they've already left their families. They've left their jobs. They've taken up with this uh, housewife who claims that she's a, a medium to the aliens. What are they going to do? Are they going to go home and say, yeah, I, I screwed up. I was wrong. Because, well, what if they leave and then the UFO comes? Then they're going to be double stupid. So these people stay with these things past the point where th there's any, uh, any idea that any of this is going to come true, but they stay with it because they don't have anywhere else to go. They've given so much to these movements. They've given so much to the belief that Trump is the real president. There was a vast, ever-changing conspiracy to steal the election from him, and it is going to be revealed at some point. And as soon as I walk away from it, that's the point where it's going to be revealed. So I'm just going to stay with it. And there's all kinds of social forces there. There's all kinds of economic forces there. But people stay with these things because the reality of I was wrong, I made a mistake, is so much worse than just waiting for the big reveal one more time. Because you've already been waiting. What's a little more waiting? And again, the breakdown in institutions of trust, community, civic engagement, it's unfair in some ways, but I always, just as an, to illustrate it, talk about like pedophilia in the sense that 50, 100 years ago, if you were a pedophile, um, really hard to meet other pedophiles successfully, right? Because yeah. it's like, when you sit on a bench and say, hey, you know what I like? You know, I like driving around in my van with candy and, you know, like, because like, most people aren't pedophiles. It's just right. very hard to like figure it out. So you have to find some underground thing, whatever, blah, 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 blah. 
the internet makes it really easy not only to find people who have shared, in the case of pedophilia, evil interests, but are just quirky, gross interests or, or diluted interests. And there's this thing in sociology, Dunbar's number, which is like uh, uh, sociologist Robin Dunbar says that, you know, we're only kind of wired to know about 150 to 200 people as human beings. And the rest are just sort of abstractions. And so like, if you get positive reinforcement from a couple dozen people, a couple hundred people, particularly on Twitter and places like that, you think, wow, there must be tens of thousands or millions of people like me. I'm not weird. My thing's not weird. I've been validated. And, and that's, that's where I start to think, okay, the problem is worse than it used to be because just the, the, tr- the, the, tr- the, the medium of transmission is so much purer than it was back in the old days where you had to like write a letter to somebody or show up at some creepy bar and like ask questions. Yeah, it, it really is. It's the, these people who have used to be isolated. You know, they were in a family where you did, nobody wanted to hear this. You know, oh, you're convinced that the government is using jet planes to spray us with chemicals. Nobody wants to hear that. That's, that's weird. I don't, you know, get away from it. But then you find other people like that. And that's really where the internet really started to coalesce these movements. And I write about this in, in Space Lasers, how in 1994, July 1994, Alt. Conspiracy, one of the, the first Usenet groups devoted to conspiracy theories, was already one of the most popular groups on the early Usenet. And this is before most people even had an email address. These people are finding each other with this technology that very few people are even using, they're using it for validation, to compare fringe beliefs, to compare conspiracy theories. Of course, immediately the Jews come up. So these people are finding each other and they're building their own universes with only these other people in them. And you don't have to talk to people who don't believe that the conspiracy is real because now you have your internet friends. Now you have your, your, your Twitter friends and whatever it is. So people are isolating themselves with other people who are isolated. And they're forming communities of outcasts. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So what is the current state of QAnon? You don't hear about it much. There's this thing that Mike Flynn is doing, which feels, again, QAnon adjacent in a certain way, but much more, much more explicitly Christian and Christian nationalist. Um, is QAnon, QAnon kind of over? Has it gone the way of chemtrails? It's, it's well, chemtrails are, are still around. If you go onto, uh, you know, fringe Twitter and just type in, you know, chemtrails, you're going to find all kinds of memes with thousands of retweets. 
Uh, these things never really go away once they've been popular. They just kind of get consumed into the newer versions. So that's really where QAnon is. There hasn't been a new Q drop uh, in well over a year. And even the ones that came out uh, in 2022 were so clearly done by the guy who owns 8chan, Jim Watkins, that even like other Q believers were like, oh, we think this is fake. Like, you can't even impress the people who believe that this stuff is real with this kind of low effort Uh, just trying to keep people interested in your really lame message board. But what's really happened is the tenets of QAnon have become completely mainstreamed, uh, I I would say, on most of the far right. The idea that there is a cabal of pedophiles that's running everything, that they're using secret codes to communicate with each other, that they're using the vaccine as as a depopulation tool, they're pitting us against each other in culture wars, all of that stuff. That was all very popular in QAnon, and it's now just everywhere on the far right. The idea that the election was going to be stolen did not start the night of the election with Trump's, you know, frankly, we did win this election speech. It was a year of certainly Trump pounding those drums, but it was also Q. There was a year of Q drops saying, this is what they're going to do. Joe Biden is a decrepit husk. He can barely get five people to a, a rally you know, where everybody's social distanced. Donald Trump is the, is the man god. No one could possibly defeat him without cheating. Well, lo and behold, he gets defeated, so there was cheating. So you had Q who really primed this runway, and then there was no need for Q anymore. Uh, the, on election day, uh, Ron Watkins, who's Jim Watkins' son, is the figure who's probably most likely uh, responsible for making most of the Q drops, basically retired and, and said, uh, I'm leaving A-Chan and I'm, I'm done with this. Well, what happens is he immediately reinvents himself as an expert in Dominion voting machines, which he was not, <laughs> and um, manages to kind of meme magic his way into getting retweeted by Donald Trump a bunch of times. He's getting interviewed on OAN. He's getting interviewed on Newsmax. He has no knowledge of this at all. He, he flipped through the, the uh, user's manual for Dominion voting machines. But because he's saying this stuff in the right way, and he's got this massive audience who, who kind of follow him because of QAnon, he basically reinvents himself as a stolen election celebrity. And he was but the first. So the, the Q movement has moved well beyond the need for uh, codes and ciphers and cutesy riddles. They don't need that stuff anymore. Now they're just mainstream. Now they're just everywhere. You don't need the trappings of the outsider movement when you're not an outsider anymore. At the same time, like, what was it? I mean, you'll know this. It was Fizzle Drop. The oh, uh, Frizzle Drip. Frizzle Drip. Wish I didn't know that, but uh... yeah. Um, if you can, with the idea that there are going to be probably somebody driving with kids in their car, if you if you, if you can just sort of explain big picture what it is, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Uh, Frizzle Drip was a purported, uh, absolutely non-existent video that supposedly showed Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin. Uh, her her uh, assistant, doing the worst possible things to a, a small child. Um, and it became kind of proof, in air quotes, of Hillary's depravity and the existence of these cults that, uh, you know, do horrible things to children to extend their lives. And again, this video does not exist in any way. It was supposed to be on Anthony Weiner's Hard drive, on Anthony right? Weiner's hard drive, and this is why uh, all the NYPD agents who supposedly looked at it then immediately took their own lives. I mean, again, it's not really what happened. The NYPD wasn't actually dealing with Anthony Weiner's laptop. It was the FBI. Um, you know, police officers taking their own lives is a very complicated issue. 
uh, has nothing to do with these secret videos on laptops. So it's one of those things where you're taking something that is real in the case of like the Anthony Weiner thing and the NYPD suicide cluster and loading it down with layer after layer after layer of conspiracy theory. And of course, because so much of it was about Hillary Clinton, it immediately found a ready audience really in the way that Q first did. You know, Q really stood out from a lot of these other uh, anonymous 4chan truth tellers because this was about Hillary Clinton. This was about Hillary finally getting what was coming to her. And I think a lot of people were immediately like, yeah, I don't know about this, but I want this to happen, so I'm going to believe it. And and that's all that's all it really takes for a movement like that to take off. Yeah, so the reason I brought it up and just, I mean, you were, you were, you were admirably PG about it, but like, just so people understand how crazy the thing was, fast forward 30 seconds if you got a little kid in the car. The allegation was that um, Hillary and Huma Abedin um, would, with a small child, cut their face off, wear it like a mask to terrify the small child so that their horm- they would have a hormonal response of putting more, it's not midichlorians. Ad- uh, you know, it might as well be adrenochrome. Adrenochrome, and then they would drink that to stay young, right? right. And like, I'm not a big fan of Hillary Clinton. Sure. I don't believe that she did that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you can not be a fan of Hillary Clinton and also not believe she is a child murdering uh, puppet master. I mean, that's that is there are there are ways to criticize people in ways that are sane and grounded in reality that don't involve um, faces being removed. But the reason I brought it up is I don't hear about that stuff anymore. I mean, is that part of the QAnon universe kind of drying up? That is up? all part of the QAnon universe. The whole Pizzagate thing is all part of the, the QAnon universe. Of course, Jeffrey Epstein and everything that happened to him and you know his, his downfall, that's all part of the QAnon universe. I think you don't hear so much about the Hillary stuff because there's no real need for it anymore. She's not in the public eye. She's not running for office again. The, um, there are more... But again, if you actually believe that she was doing this... Right. You would put everything else in your life aside to make sure that she go to prison. You that know? is exactly it. That is exactly why these movements consume people the way they do. Because you are not just reading a book about what the Masons or the Catholic conspiracy or whatever is doing to you. This is a battle between good and evil. This is God versus Satan. And by plugging into something like QAnon, by going to reawaken America rallies where Mike Flynn is, you know, selling T-shirts and and like unvaccinated semen, you you are a digital soldier. You are fighting shoulder to shoulder with the angels against the most evil forces imaginable. What, you know, if this is your thing, like what else could be your thing? You can't be like, well, I'm, uh, I'm going to go save children from the evil pedophile cabal, but on Sunday I'm going to watch the bears. Like th- th- that's not how it works. Right. Well, that's sort of my point though, is like, um, like if I honestly believe that Hillary Clinton was, was torturing small children, murdering them and then drinking their blood, it would not matter to me in the slightest that she lost an election. Right. I would still want that pursued. Right, right. <laughs> and right. the fact that people no longer pursue it, it shows you that at least some of them, it is an instrumental, instrumental cynical thing of nearest weapon to hand to try and destroy someone, not actually, not fully committing to it yourself. I mean, the, the, the danger of it is, is that all you need is one in 10,000 people to actually think it's literally true. And again, I'm not condoning violence in any way, but it's very understandable if you actually believe that was happening, that you would go into Comet Pizza across town from where I live in D.C. 
with a gun to save kids, right? And like that's the irresponsible part of it is trafficking and stuff. Right. That's that is the part where the kind of sort of grifting and brand building turns into violence. And the, the cynicism of then seeing what your conspiracy theory mongering and your grifting have done and say, well, that's a false flag. That, that guy was a Fed. He wasn't one of us. You get that all the time. When there's an act of violence perpetrated by somebody who's then found to be a QAnon believer, the Q promoters go, oh, we would never do that. We don't condone that. that that's them. They're Feds. They, that, that's the dark cabal. That's, that's them trying to make us look bad. So you, you have no tethering to the real world. You have no accountability. And, you know, I would get a lot of questions from people like, why can't they just arrest whoever's making the Q papers? Why can't they just, you know, why can't the FBI just find that person and just arrest them? I said, well, first of all, they don't really know who it is. Second of all, it's not illegal. The Q's drops were actually very cleverly worded. They're not encouraging people to go out and kill. You know, there's no Q drop that says, go pick up a gun and go to your polling place and, and you know, go shoot the closest Democrat. They would, they, that, that will get you arrested. But by throwing out sort of rhetorical prompts and riddles and letting people come up with their own versions of it, most people are not going to go pick up a gun. Most people are not going to go drive to Comet Ping Pong to go save children. But if somebody does, you can say, well, I never said that. I never, I never encouraged that. Uh, you know, there's, there's no proof of that. I, that's not me. I don't, I, we, we deplore violence. We're a peaceful research movement. And you have the plausible deniability of that. And of course, you know, that's how these people are able to keep their, their brands going. Because that is ultimately for the big promoters what it's about. It's about pumping out more videos. It's about pumping out more podcasts, uh, more of your home-produced videos and movies. It's not about saving the world. It's certainly nothing to do with helping children. It's about your brand. And in that way, they are just as cynical a grifter as anybody else who's prospered off these movements over the last few centuries. All right, so I didn't mean to go down too much of, as much of the QAnon rabbit hole as I did, but it just it's interesting to me. Um, in the time we got left, um, the notion that the Jews control everything—I um, can tell you—there were days I wish that were the case. Yes, um, uh, I understand why it got on signal boost because of the Rothschilds, but is it your contention that it begins with the Rothschilds, or that that this was just one of the early modern? manifestations of it. I mean, is Protocols of the Elders of Zion older than the Rothschild thing? Uh, no, the, the Rothschild myth really starts in about the late 1840s and the Protocols were published first in Russia in 1903 and then they hit uh, English and German and Japan in the 1920s. So the idea of the sort of globalist string-pulling cabal really finds a ready audience with the uh, with the translation of the protocols. So you have things like the Dearborn Independent. Uh, they become hugely popular in Britain. Of course, they're hugely popular in Germany. And of course, the Rothschilds are never mentioned in the protocols, but they make a very easy stand-in to be part of the, quote, elders of Zion. So the, the protocols come after the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds, of course, come after centuries of other myths about Jews, about Jews being... Uh, better with money, being uh, greedy, being clannish. And then, of course, you go back before that, you get the blood libel myth of the, you know, the Jews of, uh, of Norwich, England, killing this young boy and using his blood to bake their matzah. Before that, you get the, the deicide canard, the idea that Jews killed Jesus Christ. You know, it, it's, it, it, it is always one thing after another. And the Rothschilds are 
a version of that myth. The protocols take that myth and run with it. And then, of course, the modern George Soros conspiracy industry takes all those myths and runs with those. So you're, you're very rarely seeing anything new. You're just seeing a new application of it to current events. Yeah. And I, I should say, because otherwise I'll just hear from, I'll get grief from listeners. I absolutely 100% think that there are all sorts of anti-Semitic tropes and accusations about George Soros. At the same time, I don't think all criticism of George Soros are necessarily anti-Semitic. And, and I think one of the problems that with the way Soros has set up his endeavors is it, it almost leans into some of these, it makes it easier for some of the anti-Semitic stereotypes, like the, the getting in early to support very left-wing defund the police prosecutors and stuff. Whatever you think about the defund the police stuff, whatever you think about the sort of de- the, the decarceral agenda and all that kind of stuff, it's not good for the Jews <laughs> the way he ta- the way he does that stuff. And yeah, no, and you know, I get a lot of like, oh, well, the, you think the Rothschilds are above criticism? Not at all. Uh, there are de- there are definitely legitimate issues about the Rothschilds. I, I write about some of this in the book. Uh, Natty Rothschild of the English family was um, one of the founders of the De Beers Mining Company. They were in- they were enmeshed with Cecil Rhodes. Um, they wrote letters back and forth to each other, sort of gleefully talking about Rhodes's repression of, of various um, indigenous people in South Africa. They're no, I don't think anybody is above criticism. And, and you know, the Rothschild, Soros, any other wealthy or powerful Jewish person, they are just as uh, fallible and imperfect as the rest of us. The problem is that so much of the criticism of the Rothschilds, of Soros, of other wealthy Jews is not criticism. It's just conspiracy theories. It's just, well, the Rothschilds control all the central banks and they have $500 trillion and they fund all the wars and they fund uh, drugs and prostitution and they're pitting white people against each other. That's not criticism. That's just anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. I mean, the problem is like, you've picked a life where... Like, all you have to do to find corroboration of your um, your theses is just type in certain words into a search engine, right? I mean, I just, while you were talking there, I just wanted to see, I you know, I typed in, you know, Rothschild uh, into Twitter and, you know, I'm seeing stuff about how the Rothschilds, you know, bought Palestine for the Jews, <laughs> you know, it just, it's endless, you know? Yeah, there was, a, there was something going on, going around that the uh, Rothschilds lease on the State of Israel Corporation uh, was set to expire on October 31st. And the State of Israel would no longer exist at that point because the Rothschilds would get their land back. Well, I was like, well, it's about 2 a.m. Uh, November 1st in Israel. Oh, they're still there. <laughs> on to the next one. Yeah, I just found this uh, Twitter account, TGA Conspiracy. Never heard of it. It doesn't have a lot of followers, but its tagline is, uh, it has a thing with, do you know about Comet Ping Pong and Pizzagate and then all this Rothschild hashtag stuff, satanic rituals. And But I like their um, their tagline in their bio is, that's just a conspiracy. Probably means it's actually true. Go ask the CIA. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Which is an argument you often get. It's like, like oh, they... They always say it's a conspiracy theory, you know, as if like that proves it's 
true. And right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it's the, it's that same thing of like, it, this is the knowledge they don't want you to know just by knowing about it. You, you transcend their matrix, you become powerful, you become dangerous. Like, Oh, they call it a, a conspiracy theory. Oh, well the CIA invented the term conspiracy theory to attack Kennedy researchers. Well, that's not actually true either. Um, the CIA actually did write a really interesting memo about the Kennedy conspiracy theory uh, sort of industry. It's public. You can read it. It's actually quite interesting. But that term dates back to the late 1800s. There's just, there are real reasons why these things happen. They're just not as uh, interesting and they don't make you the main character of the story. And everybody wants to be the main character of the story. Everybody wants to feel important and special. And that's where conspiracy theories come in. Yeah. I mean, I've known people who were, I, I don't mean to be cruel about it. Some of them were family members, but were a little damaged. And um, they liked to create narratives where there were cold, there were, there were, there were, there were unseen forces, whether it was just sort of blanket racism or, or anti-Semitism, or uh, you know, bagel snarfing, warmongering Hebrews somewhere, but whatever it is, as an explanation for why their life wasn't going the way they thought it should, and that's definitely part of the the impulse to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, it is. It is a way to absolve yourself of your own failures, your own bad luck, uh, your own bad choices. It's it is so much easier to blame some other dark force that's keeping you down, that's taking away your slice of the pie. And that's why you didn't get to where you wanted to go in your life. It, was because, it wasn't because of you or bad luck or whatever. It was they did it. And that has a, a kind of a universal appeal, especially to people who are a little bit damaged, who, are, uh, who have trauma in their past, who, who have reasons why they don't connect with the world the way the rest of us do. These kinds of movements are very, very appealing. You're talking about the people who are hearing voices in their feelings. I mean, there are communities of people, uh, they're called targeted individuals. They believe that they are unwitting test subjects in secret government weapon experiments that are, uh, you know, burning their skin, uh, you know, sending cars to follow them. I mean, this, you can't reason people out of this because they just, they believe it's true because it explains things. And, and when you are dealing with that, there, there is a, a, a tendency to just step back from it and say, look, I'm not engaging with this anymore. There's nothing I can do. All right. Um, Mike Rothschild? On that happy note. <laughs> on that happy note, you know, I mean, got, got to end it somewhere. Otherwise, we can just sit here and we could. Um, explain why Colonel Sanders is really blamed for all of it. Um, uh, the book is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Uh, Mike Rothschild, thanks for coming on The Remnant. Thank you. Okay, so Mike Rothschild has, has left the studio. I know there's a little different sort of format. It was a lot more just sort of like informational kind of questions and stuff. And um, and because again, we didn't plan on, plan on having him on for a while, but not um, amidst all the craziness with Israel. And I thought it'd be a little unfair to like switch gears on him and have, and have Rothschild talk about all of the Israel stuff when it's not what his book is about and it's not the stuff that, that he's expert on. And also we had Dan Siner on um, to actually talk about Israel. So I try to keep that as a minimum. Um, and uh, the book is actually uh, really pretty good. I, I 
been dipping in and out of it for a week. I took it, I took it to Europe with me and in part because I just like the idea of having people see me reading a book called Jewish Space Lizards. By the time you hear this, we will probably have done our AMA. I'm not sure. Um, so I won't ask you to send more AMA stuff in, but I will ask you to subscribe to the dispatch. Uh, we are now a year out from the uh, presidential election. Um, I just sent an uh, email, you know, a pitch to people who are subscribers to our free stuff saying you really should subscribe to uh, become a paying member. And I'll give you the same brief pitch I gave them. Most Americans do not want the choices that it looks like they're going to have. Um, if you don't think that's true, I recommend looking at the polls. It's just like one poll after another. People don't like these choices. They may like one side more than the other side, but this is there's a general sense out there among a lot of people that this is no way to run a, a railroad or a country. And um, and so in the next year, you're going to get a lot of partisans and a lot of media, ideological or partisan media trying to convince you that you should love one choice or hate the other choice rather than dislike both of them. And if you love one choice, that's great. If you love Joe Biden, that's great. If you love Donald Trump, that's great. I still think you should be a subscriber to the dispatch. But if you feel like there could be a better way or you want to stay informed with this stuff without being condescended to or told that you have to um, be all in on one or the other and instead want to have a bit more of a critical distance, um, if you want to call that both sidesism, that's fine. Um, I think the dispatch is going to be a place where it's going to be a real island of sanity for you. Um, our political coverage is going to be, uh, we, are, we are making big investments to really up the gain on our political coverage. Um, just covering everything for the kind of reader who wants to be um, informed but isn't obsessive about a lot of the stuff that drives uh, traffic inside the Beltway and among the sort of uh, cheerleader crowd on the right or the left. Uh, we want to shed light, not heat, on the opinion side. You know where we come down on a lot of these things. Um, but we're not carrying water for anybody. And, um, you know, the feedback we get most from people is, thank you for the dispatch because I thought I was taking crazy pills. Thank you for the dispatch because... Um, uh, it's an island of sanity and all that kind of stuff. We take that very seriously. We also take very, very seriously not wasting your time. I honestly and truly think that if you just subscribe to the Morning Dispatch, um, the full paid version, uh, you would be up to speed on global and domestic affairs more than a lot of people. Um, I'm not saying it's the only, it should be your only source of news or anything like that, but it is a great product to feel like you have done your due diligence for the morning and you can get on with your life. So we're doing good things. We want to do more good things. And it really kind of depends on uh, people like you to support what we're doing and to become paid subscribers. And um, so please do so if you can. And if you can't, I understand. I'll ask you again because that's part of my job. But um, I think you'll find it. It's... it's uh, a real value for what we're asking. So uh, anyway, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. That's what they want you to think.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.